39 million American citizens' social security cards are potentially at risk of being stolen for the purpose of people here illegally getting employment. The deception has to continue for the employee to continue to keep the job. In terms of what you just said about they present false documents, this gets into a territory where it's not a victimless crime. Welcome to No Border, No Country. My name is Brian Lonergan. I'm joined by Judge Matt O'Brien. Hi, Matt. Hi, Brian. How are you today? Awesome. So, Matt, you wrote a friend of the court brief recently on behalf of Early in a case or an issue that deals with hiring of immigration violators. Tell us about that. Sure. So, on uh, Monday, February 27th of 2023, uh, the Immigration Reform Law Institute filed a friend of the court brief. Uh, with the Office of the Chief Administrative Hearings Officer at the uh, Executive Office for Immigration Review. Uh, so to kind of break that down for the audience, uh, people watching who aren't lawyers, a friend of the court brief is a brief that the court asked for from parties who are not litigants, but who have some expertise in the issue that is before the court. And what those do is they help the court kind of get a reading on how other organizations with legal expertise are reading the law and what the law might mean. Now, uh, what everybody calls the immigration court is actually a Department of Justice agency. It's an administrative court called the Executive Office for Immigration Review. And that consists of the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is the appellate body that hears cases from the immigration court, which is the trial tribunal that deals with deportation cases. And then a sort of parallel court to the immigration court is what's called the Office of the Chief Administrative Hearings Officer. And that is a, a special administrative court that deals with immigration-related unfair employment practices, certain types of employer fines, and uh, a couple of other related immigration issues. But, but the bulk of its work deals with uh, immigration in the employment sphere. So what was that issue here? What, what's, the, what's central to this here? Sure. So the Office of Chief Administrative Hearings Officer wanted to know if under Section 1324A of the Immigration Nationality Act, excuse me, Section 1324C of the Immigration and Nationality right. Act, Come on. Um, if, uh, if that was uh, the presentation of fraudulent documents, uh, to complete the Form I-9. Now, most people are familiar with the Form I-9. When you get a new job, uh, the employer usually asks you to bring in your passport or like your social security card and driver's license, and you complete a form. It used to say INS. It now says, I believe, Department of Homeland Security on it. And that's the form whereby the employer verifies that you have authorization to work in the U.S. Now, what a lot of unlawfully present migrants, because we don't want to say that IA word, that the, uh, the YouTube doesn't like. Uh, what a lot of unlawfully present migrants who don't have authorizational work will do is they will present fraudulent documents to the employer. And so the, the legal question that was presented by the tribunal here was when someone does that in order to deceive the employer into thinking that they have authorization to accept a job in the United States, is that a discrete act of fraud that happens when the documents are presented and reviewed, or is it an ongoing act of deception whereby the employer who's not entitled to work continues to defraud the employer 
in order to keep the job. And Early's argument was that the employee engages in an ongoing act of fraud because the deception has to continue for the employee to continue to keep the job. And that's where Section 1324A comes in because that requires employers, as soon as they become aware of the fact that uh, a foreign individual is not authorized or no longer authorized to be employed in the United States, they have an obligation to terminate that individual. So what would be the case against that? Because common sense would dictate that if you are working at a place under false pretenses, every day you come in and punch that clock, you're committing further deception, no? Yes, however, a lot of this has to do with the way things are written uh, in statutes. And so discrete offenses are offenses like when I rob you. If I stick a gun in your ribs on the street and say your money or your life, that act is complete when you hand me over your wallet and I flee. Um, a lot of acts that have to do with documents and things like that can be discrete acts because the fraud that the government is trying to prevent is you presenting the false documents or signing a document that you're not entitled to sign. Um, however, in this case, the, the legislation, the way it was put together, when you read 1324A and 1324C in conjunction, First of all, 1324C, Congress could have said the presentation or the submission of documents, but they didn't. They referred to the use of documents, and there's a pile of case law saying that use in the legal context refers to an ongoing act. So the way the statute itself is written indicates that Congress intended to penalize ongoing fraud. Then when you take that, read that in conjunction with the obligation for the employer to one, report this kind of fraud when it discovers it to the Department of Homeland Security and two, to refrain from continuing to hire the employee. You can read that as Congress's intention was to prohibit the ongoing deception of employers in order for people who aren't authorized to work in the U.S. to obtain employment and earn money here. So one of the chief arguments in, um, uh, from the anti-borders crowd is that coming here illegally is a victimless crime, that these people just want a better life and, and why are we persecuting them? But when we get into this area that we're talking about here, it's, it's not a victimless crime, is it? No, it's not a victimless crime at all. I mean, uh, you know, to start off, this places employers in a position where they could be brought up on charges. I mean, if somebody's fraud is effective enough and they convince the government, uh, you know, the government conducts a worksite enforcement and uh, they come in and the uh, person wants to stay here and they say, hey, I want to be a cooperating witness. This employer is hiring illegal aliens. You have a situation where the employer can be put in a bad position. Now, sometimes you have unscrupulous employers that are actually involved in this, but the fact is there are a lot of people that, because the laws are so lax about completing the I-9s, that don't really know the difference. Um, so you want to avoid that. Uh, number two, you know, you have people that go and purchase forged documents, and document forgery overall is a bad thing. 
uh, terrorists use forged documents and, and, and fake identities, and so do all sorts of criminals. So you don't want to encourage document forgery. But the, by far the most common thing, which, which is one of the primary reasons this is not a victimless crime, is if you're not dialed in enough to get forged documents, uh, or if you're not knowledgeable enough to, to know a forger, what do you do? Well, you go steal someone's identity. All of a sudden, Maximo Gomez becomes Brian Lonergan and steals Brian Lonergan's social security number and shows up with a passport that he got using Brian's date of birth and social security number and presents that to the employer. So this is, is not a victimless crime at all. I mean, the fact is the vast majority of people who come here unlawfully and stay wind up engaging in some kind of fraud, particularly identity fraud, in order to facilitate their stay and to be able to work. Early did an investigation a few years back where they found that up to 39 million American citizens' social security cards are potentially at risk of being stolen for the purpose of people here illegally getting employment. That, that's a frightening number. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Um, and when you think of it, we don't have a national identity number or document. You know, Canadians have a Canadian citizenship card. There's a national identity card in France. Social security number is the closest thing we have to that. They used to use that as your driver's identification number on your driver's license and all kinds of things like that until privacy concerns became paramount. So, yeah, that's a major issue. And the fact is that there's massive amounts of social security fraud going on all over the United States, uh, primarily committed by people who are unlawfully present foreigners who are using bogus social security numbers to, to get employment. So you see, you watch television, you're, you're online, you see myriad products being sold to help you reduce your, your chances of being a victim of identity theft, but this is one of the major drivers of that. Yeah, it is one of the major drivers of it. And if you think of, uh, you know, the kind of digital footprint that most people leave these days, uh, you know, it's fairly easy to get people's information. And people who become adept at this, forgers, fraudsters, um, you know, are, are, are pretty good at, at, at grabbing things. And you'd be surprised where your, your identity numbers can come up and how much you can piece together if you're, you're fairly savvy at this. Most unlawfully present migrants... Um, you know, they aren't going and stealing this stuff online. They're, they're going to someone else that facilitates this. So there's this whole network of criminal activity that supports these kind of things. And, and you know, this is, is, is driven. A lot of these people are, are dealing with these issues with smugglers before they even get into the United States. So one of the most frequent um, downsides of identity theft or casualties of it is that um, the the fear of opening your bank account statement and finding out it's been emptied out by whoever stole your identity, that that's a very real thing. But another thing is there could be a guy at a meat processing plant in Nebraska working as you. Well, there could be a guy in a meat processing plant in Nebraska working as you. Um, and the fact is because this guy working at the meat processing plant is unlawfully present, you go to file your tax return, the IRS audits you, and all of a sudden they go, hey, you got $36,000 in extra wages from the meatpacking plant mm -hmm. that you've been working in in Omaha. And you look at the Internal Revenue Service, you say, hey, I'm Brian Lonergan. I, I live in Washington, D.C. I work in Washington, D.C. How is this happening? And they're going, well, we don't care. It's money that you didn't file or include in mm -hmm. your tax returns. 
So this creates any number of crazy problems for U.S. citizens that they simply should not have to deal with and would not have to deal with if we took seriously the enforcement of our immigration laws. And no doubt the government bureaucrats would be highly sympathetic to your plight and would work with you in every way to lessen the pain. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Okay. We'll be right back. I'm Tom Holman. The Biden administration is reversing America's progress on immigration, reversing ICE's ability to deport criminal illegal aliens, reversing job protections for Americans, and construction of the wall. That's why I've joined early. The Immigration Reform Law Institute early uses the courts to stop bad immigration policies. Join me. Support early at early.org. Help win the immigration fight in the courtroom. Paid for by the Immigration Reform Law Institute. And we're back. Matt, so we're talking about this workplace issue, and one of the elements of this debate that you'll often hear is E-Verify and, and the need for it. T- tell us what, what is E-Verify and why, how does it factor in all this? Sure. So uh, a few years back, I think we're talking like 15, 20 years back at this point, Congress mandated that uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which was then the, the, the immigration agency of the federal government, should come up with a way that employers could easily verify uh, the work authorization of foreign nationals who were in the United States. And that's people who are here uh, lawfully, unlawfully. However, if you're not American uh, and you were working in the United States, there would be an electronic system that you could plug into in order to uh, to look up this information and make it simple for employers. Uh, it took forever to get the system up and running uh, you know, for reasons that just have to do with government contracting and the usual reason that the government can't do anything except at a glacial pace. Uh, when the system came up, you had a lot of critics claiming that it produced false matches that said that an individual was not authorized to work. Um, having worked on a lot of E-Verify issues when I was at USCIS, I think that was grossly overblown, uh, and I think it was a target of opportunity for people that don't want the system because they want unlawfully present migrants to be able to work in the U.S. Um, the fact is that it's a really effective system. They now have it down to the point where there are, uh, you know, a very small number of mismatches. The accuracy rate is something in the neighborhood of 96%. Um, and if the system were to be made mandatory, you could eliminate roughly 90, 95% of the unlawful employment in the United States. But I think for a variety of reasons, the people who are in favor of large numbers of illegal aliens being here don't want this thing in place. Most people, when they apply for a job or, or they apply for anything, really, there's always some form of verification. People are mm-hmm. used to that. So the, the argument then would be, what do these people have against verification? Why, why is, wh- what possible reasoning could they give why, why this is a bad idea? Well, there isn't a whole lot of reasoning. It's emotional arguments. They claim that it's discrimination and things of that nature. Uh, the fact is, like I said, they don't like it because it's effective, and what it would do is it would keep a lot of people who are unlawfully present in the United States from working, and of course... The logical conclusion from that is that when ICE starts becoming aware of these people who are not authorized to work because they're here unlawfully, ICE would then be able to start engaging in in removal, uh, deportation of those folks. And 
you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of other issues connected with that. There are a lot of countries, particularly in Central and South America, that their entire economy is dependent upon remittance payments made from the United States. So we have people from those countries here that are sending hard currency outside of the United States to those countries. We're one of the few countries that doesn't tax remittances. Um, so, the, uh, you know, if E-Verify were put into place, one of the things that would go a long way toward doing is setting up a system whereby you could effectively tax remittances. So there's, there's a lot of things wrapped up in this. But the long and the short of it is that if this were made mandatory, the E-Verify system, and employers had an easy way to find that people are not eligible to work, and they could do this by entering some information into an internet system and then tell people, sorry, I can't hire you. And then that recorded a hit in the system that a job was denied to someone. It, it boosts the enforcement capacity of ICE, uh, CBP, and USCIS to a significant level, and it would go a long way towards solving a lot of these problems. Plus, it would, it would essentially nullify the, the sort of low-grade immigration fraud that goes on in most of these cases, which is, you know, you find a dead person, find their social security number, and, uh, and uh, you know, use that in order to keep working. So it would eliminate a significant amount of that. Even if you were able to convince certain people who are resistant to these logical arguments, okay, fine, we'll, we'll go with E-Verify. We'll crack down on identity theft. That still leaves the matter of hiring people who are not legally present here displaces U.S. citizens in jobs, and it drives down the wages of U.S. citizens in jobs. Talk about that. Well, it does. It, it, it takes away jobs uh, from Americans. It also artificially depresses the, the wage levels. Uh, you see that probably most significantly in the tech industry, where you have a lot of people who are here from places like India and China. And their first concern is not the wage they're going to be making, it's coming to the United States. So working for a lower wage is the price of admission to, to, the, to the blockbuster movie, which is the United States. And so you have a lot of people that are willing to, for as long as they can, work for whatever wage they can get as an H-1B temporary tech worker so that they have a path to a green card in the United States. What that does is it artificially depresses the wages in the market in the U.S. because you have an external market factor that has another economic driver attached to it, and those people are willing to take less than they should be paid for the work that they're doing, whereas an American, you know, if you have somebody who's in Peoria, who's a, a skilled tech worker, they're, they're not getting any kind of a premium to relocate they're just expected to bear the cost of moving and then work, and their wage is not what market competition should be making the wage. It's what a market where Chinese and Indians and Filipinos and other tech workers who are used to significantly lower wages at home are willing to accept. And so instead of getting the kind of wage, uh, you know, market wage to get set by the market itself that you would get with say like attorneys or medical doctors who have to have a license and meet certain requirements to work here you artificially depress the wages 
Uh, the other problem you have is that it, it opens up a huge door to exploitation of the people coming from overseas. And, uh, you know, there have been situations where ICE and USCIS investigated H-1B employers and found that they had people that were being required to work for, you know, 80 hours a week and not being fully compensated for all of that. Uh, they had people that were locked into job sites that were not allowed to leave until projects were finished. I mean, crazy stuff that's just not tolerated in the American workplace. And, and this all feeds this. And so this is why this case was important for Early to, to file an amicus brief in because Early wants to protect America's national security, America's economic security, and we want to make sure that Americans have a fair shot at, at getting decent jobs. We also want to make sure that people coming to the U.S. from outside do not become subject to exploitation by unscrupulous employers. And so what this case did was it, it, it allowed us to make an argument for penalizing the type of fraud that Congress wanted to see penalized. You mentioned earlier that the other side will often resort to emotional reasoning to defend their positions. But in this case, it, it doesn't work for them because you, they'll say, well, it's cruel to not allow them here and to get a job and make money. Is it not also cruel to put them in a system, in a situation where they're going to be working in sweatshops for ridiculously low pay for ridiculously long hours and possibly open themselves up to all other kinds of exploitation? Oh, yeah, it's immensely cruel. Um, but like I said, these are emotional arguments with, without a whole lot of logic behind them. I mean, and cruel is a relative term. I mean, you know, I happen to think it's cruel that I'm not driving a Maserati and living in a mansion. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of these guys living at the homeless shelter that's next door to our, our building would not agree with me there. Uh, you know, a lot of them are happy to simply have a roof over their head. So it, it's, uh, I think it's important when, when people are called upon to make policy decisions, to make policy decisions using hard information and, and using, you know, good fundamental political principles that apply here in the United States. But emotional arguments don't get us to good policy decisions. They, they get us to whatever pulls people's heartstrings. And, uh, you know, if you want to take that down to the basis level, uh, you know, emotional arguments are, are like cat videos on YouTube. I mean, people look at them and they go, oh, but there's not a whole lot of substance going on there. Right. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and share it with your friends. If you want to learn more about the Immigration Reform Law Institute, go to IRLI.org. We're also on all the major social media platforms. We'll see you next time.